So on uh, Thursday, my wife was trying to take my oldest son to to the horse stalls where he works, and there was um, ice on the windshield of the van that they and we couldn't find a scraper. Uh, not a problem down here very often, I guess, but up where we live, it is a problem. Uh, so I went out barefoot because uh, it's it's okay to walk barefoot up in the north. Uh, but no one told me there was like a thin layer of ice on the sidewalk. So when I walked out, I slipped, and I ripped a lot of skin off my toe. It was really gross. Um, and then snapped it. It's bent. It looks, it's not right. It's pointing the wrong direction. Um, anyhow. Um, and so I clearly broke it. And I didn't have time to go to urgent care. Or didn't really want to go. Um, but uh, so it hurts. And last night, I just, I don't know how much, many hours I slept. Maybe like two or something. So filters are off. Um, this will either be a lot of genius stuff or I'll beg Dwayne to delete the file. So, so we're in Jeremiah 29, 1 through 9. Where we will land, we shall find out. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 9. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elias, Eliasa, uh, the son of Shaphan, whatever, and Jam, Jam, uh, how do you say it, Jamariah? Is that what you say? There you go. Um, the son of Hilkiah, uh, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, we pray you would bless us now with attentive hearers and humble hearts that we would receive your word in meekness and would bear much fruit to your glory and to the good of those around us. In your son's name, amen. amen. So this morning, I want to briefly consider what our priority should be when we are the minority in a pagan land. And I think it's fair to say that Orthodox Christianity now is a minority here in this, this country. Uh, what does it look like to build in the shadows of Babylon? And again, I think we can mine some principles from the exilic books, uh, which is why we're back in Jeremiah. Israel wasn't brought into captivity in one fell swoop. It happened in waves, just like its resettlement did. 
And at this point in Jeremiah 29, Judah and Jerusalem had already been invaded twice, and each time they took captives with them. And uh, that being said, there was still a large population left in Jerusalem, uh, which eventually would be carried away into captivity as well. But for the moment, there was exiles in Babylon who were pining for those that remained in their homeland. They wanted to go home to be with them. They wanted to get back to their people, and they wanted to return to their former way of life. And they were no doubt sad and even depressed. And it didn't help that carried along with them to Babylon were also false prophets. So there weren't just guys like Hananiah back home saying this, but there were people in Babylon saying, you're going to get sent back home. Don't worry. It's going to be, everything's going to be fine. Trust the plan, right? Um, And telling them that the the stay was going to be a short one. But over and over again, God says, no, no, it's not. You will be here for 70 years. So Jeremiah writes them, a letter of encouragement and exhortation. So not all news is bad. There is some news that can be helpful, that can actually, uh, I think it's kind of funny that Jeremiah, when he sends him news, what does he tell him? Well, be where God puts you, right? Dive in deeper. In verse one, Jeremiah writes to the people. Uh, he says, uh, you are the people that Nebuchadnezzar has taken into exile And yet in verse four, he writes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. So Nebuchadnezzar was only a means by which God had placed them where he wanted them. That's key. I like what Matthew Henry says on this. He says, all the force of the king of Babylon could not have done it if God had not ordered it, nor could he have any power against them, but was given him from above. If God caused them to be carried captives, they might be sure that he neither did them any wrong nor meant them any hurt. Note, it will help very much to reconcile us to our troubles and to make us patient under them to consider that they are what God has appointed to us. Nebuchadnezzar carried them there, but it was according to the will of God. God sent them there. In Acts 17, 26, there's a little phrase that's thrown out when Paul is preaching in Mars Hill. He says, God has determined our appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation. He chose your time and place in history. It's key. Just as he placed some of the Jews in exile in Babylon, so he has placed some of his people in America in 2022. Your being here is part of his grand design of all things. It's his plan. You weren't meant to live in any other time but now. You were made for today. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the Fellowship of the Ring movies, I forget if this is in the books, um, but Frodo speaking of the darkness on their land, the troubled times, he says, I wish it need not happen in my time. And Gandalf replies, so do I, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And sometimes I, I grieve that my kids won't know what I knew. I didn't know I had no clue that the 80s and our 90s was going to be like some idyllic time to grow up. It's really humorous thinking back. I saw this uh, video. Someone sent it to me, and it was young kids now showing videos of what public high school looked like in, like, 2000. And like, oh, look how happy they were. It was such a happier time. And I was like, you don't know how stupid that sounds to us. I was there. But, um, but. It was it was a simpler time in a lot of ways. Um, I was born in 1980, and so I'm like in between Gen X and the millennials, a new analog world and a digital world. 
um, uh, back when you wanted to talk to your girlfriend, you would pull your phone with this long cable and like shut a door kind of, and then listen very careful if there's a breathing on the other phone connected to it, people listening, you know. Um, but uh, it was a different time. If you ever watched the show X-Files, it kind of captures the massive change that happened. Like the first couple seasons, Mulder's running to go find a, a phone booth, right? You know, and then he's printing things off and ripping little sides of the paper off the printer. Uh, and things has changed so rapidly, you don't see that. We would go away all day long. And my parents had no clue where we were. Where we were, often we had walked miles down a train track past a bunch of homeless people. And we were jumping off a train bridge into a tributary that Seagram's whiskey plant poured who knows what into, you know. Uh, and we are diving off this thing, and there's an undercurrent that would pull you down the creek, and then you'd swim to the side. Very dangerous. Um, and we sometimes would ride the back of trains to get there. So we'd just run, you grab them, and they pull you really hard, and you got to, like, lift your body up, you know. And we get home before the streetlights come on. It was a lot of freedom. And if I call my wife or son and they don't respond back in like, you know, like 30 minutes feels like forever. That's how crazy we've gotten. We've gotten crazy. We're kind of loony now. Like we have to be in constant contact. Um, In my public high school, we all had our shotguns and rifles in the back of our truck windows in the parking lot you know, (laughs) during hunting season. And you could get into our high school any which way you wanted. All the doors were unlocked, right? Um, And then in 1999, Columbine happened and changed schools forever, where now schools are not just the prison of the mind, but literally a prison of the body, and uh, public schools anyhow. And things have changed Uh, if you wanted to get pornography when I was young, it was not easy. Right? You had to find some way to, to buy it. You had to find it underneath some like relative's mattress or a VHS thing. It, you had to watch it on a TV. You're not going to go hide in a bathroom with it. And now if you hit the wrong button on a phone, right, type in the wrong URL, it's there. That stuff just wasn't around. Um, you you didn't know that much about what was going on everywhere. You didn't think about it. You thought about your own little town. And so I, I, I look at that and I think, man, I, I would love for my kids to experience that sort of simplicity and freedom that I, I had as a kid growing up in small Indiana towns. Um, but I take comfort in knowing that God knows what he's doing, right? Uh, he's placed me and he's placed them in their time. And you need to remember, especially older folks, that nostalgia can be a thief, it can rob you of your future by keeping you stuck in your past, right? And often the past is edited. Like, you ever, like, tell a story, like, a bunch of times, and then someone you hadn't seen in years who was there, and you run into them after not seeing them, then you tell the story, and they're like, that's not what happened. And they're like, oh, that's right, you know? Right, we edit our past to remember it to be a little bit better than it is. We do with our past memories what people do on Instagram, Right, Instagram is the highlights. Like, like I made this family video set to really exciting music. 
You know, it's like Arcade Fire, and it's got this driving bass, and my kids are running around, we're at like zoos and all this stuff, and someone's like, well, you live an exciting life. Hey man, that's two minutes from a whole like year edited dramatically to music. If I take the music out, it's like, ah, it's a kid running around, you know? Like, it's the highlights. That's what social media is. You know, I don't feel bad about sharing pictures of my vacation. Right, I'm ha- I'm having fun. This is what I did. Uh, be happy for me. You should do something like this too. You know, it's not to like brag. People say that. I mean, it, the whole purpose of social media is to show like highlights. You know, you don't uh, just post random things that are disconnected. And so we do that with our memories. So we remember the highlights, not all the things around it. There were downsides. Um, I don't want to go in the past. I love I love the internet. I love uh, air conditioning. I'm not trying to get back to the old west, you know, uh, at all. Uh, this is where God's put us. And we have to learn to be where uh, we are without longing look, longingly look elsewhere. That's a form of coveting, right? Where we, we covet something that we don't have, and often that something doesn't even exist, Right, right, like a, a perfect marriage, a perfect relationship, perfect kids, a perfect place, perfect church. Right? We're always looking somewhere else instead of where the sovereign Lord has placed us. And there is a great resettlement happening in America. You guys know that. I saw a video of your housing market here. It's pretty crazy. It's a little intense in uh, Ohio, but the liberals haven't figured out how great southern Ohio is. Don't tell them. I don't want them to know. Have you considered Raleigh? That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> so, stay away. <laughs> so, um, and there's two major causes to this great resettlement. One, I didn't put in my notes. One thing that's been happening, we've been moving to remote work as a culture for a long time. And that got thrown into hyperdrive during... Uh, the responses to the pandemic. So that's part of it. During the pandemic, uh, people started to realize how vulnerable they were to governments and government overreach and all sorts of, like they could tell you that we're gonna save your life by taking away your livelihood, you know, um, because we love you. (laughs) It's an abuser relationship, right? I only hurt you because I love you. Um, So when that happened, people wanted to relocate the places that had less taxes, more stable systems, better uh, law enforcement. It's, it's kind of funny, the people that like defund the police, create a little hell hole, and they're like, it's dangerous here, we need to move. Yeah, you, you did that. Um, and so they're relocating, uh, and that's happening in mass. So their uh, big destinations are aspects of the, or parts of the South, Florida is a really heavy one, here's another, uh, lots of uh, Greenville, South Carolina is another one. Uh, Idaho and Montana have long been a destination for people that want greater self-sufficiency and be left alone. Um, And so that's all sped up. And the other thing, there's a Christian aspect to it. People saw their churches uh, go woke almost overnight. Um, When everything went down with George Floyd, uh, everyone found out that they're racist for being, being white, right? That makes you that makes you racist. And I was like, look, I'm not white, I'm Jewish. I'm ethically Jewish, like that's your guy's problem. You guys solve that, right? Um, And uh, I have nothing to do with this. 
but you privilege you, you get the privileges of whiteness. Like, when can I get them? I'm like, I want more. Uh, but um, people saw that in their churches, and then they also saw pastors throw down Romans 13 real hard, real uneven, and guys that had kind of been hands off suddenly demanding total obedience and saying that if you don't cover your face, that you hate your neighbor, you know? And people who had never really thought deeply about a lot of things, the relationship of church to state, but really even deeply about their Christianity, were pushed by that crisis uh, into the word and online, and they found things like cross-politic. They found uh, different podcasts that were speaking against these things. And there was just this massive awakening. It was like crazy. Um, like at our church, we're about 15 months old, and we've definitely benefited from some of that. But most of the people in our church are brand new to not just Reformed theology, but theology. And we have a lot of people in our church that come from a Methodist background. There's a couple that, before me, their last pastor was a lesbian woman. That's the sort of shocking switches that are happening right now. And so people now are looking for not just a, a place with more freedom, but also places, if they're Christians, that have solid churches. And so you have like a mass migration to Christchurch, Moscow. A lot of people moving out there, like the hundreds of families are moving out there, and it's a pretty small area. And I don't think it's wrong um, to resettle based on a church. I think you need to be careful. Uh, you have basically three choices if, uh, if you only have unhealthy church options where you live. So they come down to work for Reformation where you're at. That should be your default always. Can, can we work? Make an effort, try. Um, or move to a region where there's a healthier church, so if you've tried Reformation and it's not working, you don't have the influence, you've sought prayer, you've worked through it for a while, you suffered for a bit. Remember, it took Abraham 25 years to have that promise of God fulfilled. You can, you can wait a bit. Um, then move to a place where there's a healthier church. Notice I say healthier. Churches exist on a spectrum of pure and impure. You know? So you're not gonna find this perfect church. And if that doesn't, you can't do that for some reason, then you have to join an effort uh, to plant a new church in your region. And this is a great time to plant a church. It's a wonderful time to plant a church. Uh, so these are basically your three options, but all of them require patience. And as you consider things like that, you need to be aware of two temptations uh, related to finding a church, and they're idealism and consumerism. So idealism is in the sense that you're looking for the ideal church. So our church has a lot of people, I think we have someone visiting from out of town, Almost every week, but I'd say three out of four weeks in a month. So come in California, Wisconsin, wherever. And we've had, at this point, I think seven or eight families move there. And a lot of them are kind of circling. And I'll have them over to my house for lunch afterwards. And they usually have like this crazy long uh, list of questions about our theology, which again, it's not wrong. Um, but they'll ask, so what's your position on theonomic rest, uh, reconstructionism? You know, and I'll say, well, what do you mean by it? You know, <laughs> what do you mean by theonomic reconstructionism? Uh, well, you, you know, well, it sounds like you don't. <laughs> so <laughs> it sounds like you don't know what you're talking about. You've been listening to some podcasts, huh? Um, but uh, so they got this long list, and you do this like they do that there, and all these things are asking if we have that. And I don't mind them asking those questions, 
but they're, they really are trying to find that church that's just safe, that's perfect. They're, they have this long list of requirements. Um, and every church is going to disappoint you, right? Every church is because we're sinners. Your pastor will disappoint you, and you'll disappoint him, <laughs> right? We're imperfect people. We're sinners that need repentance, and, and life together is a hard life of, of uh, mutual sanctification through relationship, right? And one of my favorite things to do is I love to underwhelm people when they visit East River. Like, I, that's great. Um, because I don't have to live up to their expectations anymore. I'm like, yep, it's just the church. Um, and we had uh, one of the families that moved down there, one of our deacon candidates right now, a few months in being down in Batavia, and they took a long time to make that decision. It took like over a year and visited a couple times, and we had lots of talks. And uh, we, I get some guys that come to our church because they read a book I wrote or a podcast I did, and they think we're like masculinity church or something. Like, that's all we ever talk about. That's all we ever think about. But there's the Bible, 66 books, and there's a whole lot of stuff in the Bible that we're going to talk about. Uh, we're not a hobby horse church. And so I got to correct them on that and uh, wait. And then they find out the women can vote in our church meetings. Oh, I know, right? I uh, hate to disappoint. Turns out I am an egalitarian, right? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but. I tried to prepare them for that, and I had those talks with this guy. And when they had been down there, I said, so how are you guys doing? How are you guys settling in? And he said, well, you know, there was this huge, all the excitement, this huge push to get down to Batavia to find a house. Finding a house was like this crazy epic battle. If you're looking for a house right now, you know how it is. So they, they get the house. They move in. We all helped them move in, start attending church. And then he said, it was like all that, and now we have to live the rest of our life. Right? It's very, I mean, it's very true, is that once you get somewhere, you have to live the rest of your life there. <clears throat> and so if you visit a church from out of town, especially if there's something like this going on, like cool conference and people had taken time off work and to spend more fellowship time together, you can get the sense it's like that there all the time. Like everyone's just hanging out all the time. Uh, but, you know, once you get into a community, there's the flow of life, the rhythm of life, the rush. You really have to be disciplined to get together. And you can't have that vacation mindset when you move to be part of someplace. And people come and shop, and that's how they think, and they don't get plugged in. And so immediately, the church uh, doesn't live up to their expectations. It could be because the church oversold themselves, but it also could just be that person just has this imagined what reality, what real life looks like. Uh, I see that a lot in marriage. Marriage is wonderful. I, I love being married, but uh, there are some people that have such a high view of marriage that that first year is gonna be a lot of uh, recalibrating <laughs> to the reality. The first time you hear your spouse go, <laughs> in the other, <laughs> other room, you're like, <laughs> you know. Then uh, my wife doesn't do that. She really doesn't. <laughs> There's other things, like, I don't know, how do women's hair get into everything? <laughs> You're eating something, and it's like, pulling out, like, she didn't even help make this thing. I made this. <laughs> so, be married to Chewbacca. Um, but uh, anyhow, uh, the reality of marriage life, the reality of church life is pretty humble. And uh, you got to be careful. You can't be a consumer right, consumerism, and that is where you're looking for what a church can primarily offer you, 
you know, um, do you have a school? Do you have classical Christian education? So I know my kids will go to heaven, right? Um, not that it isn't important, but get a grip. Um, no, come and start one. Come help us start one, right? Do you have this or that ministry? Nope, you can help start that too, right? You can invite your friends. We'll support you. We want that. All right, we're busy. Um, we have other things we're doing too. We want co-laborers, right? Not consumers. Church isn't, I don't provide goods and services. Preach the word and administer the sacraments. And shepherd souls. Um, wherever you are, wherever you land, it's going to be imperfect. I've noticed this uh, with, I don't know how this is working, but I have a lot of people that are coming to uh, Batavia. It's like between Batavia and Moscow. Moscow, Idaho. They're trying to decide where they're going to go. And I'm fine with whatever they want to do. You know, if they, I actually, sometimes I'm happier they go to Moscow um, because it's, it's, it's easier, frankly. I don't have to deal with all the, the logistics and complexities of introducing someone into a new, to a new town and forming friendships and whatever. But one thing I do warn them about, they'll go out to Moscow and they'll be way more impressed than they are with Batavia, as they should. We are 14 months into this. They are, if you count Doug's father, 50 years into that, right? So people are always, that, that takes time to build things. It takes time to, to create that culture and, uh, and all the things that they're doing out there. And, and you, you'll see people visit CREC churches and expect, you know, Moscow now. Or try to copy Moscow. You guys don't want to be Moscow. This isn't Moscow. This is the South. This is Cary, North Carolina. Two different cultures. This also is in a little tiny town with that liberal uh, college culture. I used to live in Bloomington, Indiana. It's bigger than Moscow, but it's similar in where you're just locked in a lot of cultural warfare because of the liberal college uh, or university in your community. Um, This church... We'll have similar principles because we're all in the same denomination and we have similar commitments. But the way that they're going to work out here are going to be different, and that's how, that's how it should be. That's good. And so what happens is people see that and say, wow, it's so much better what I have, and they make it an ideal, and then they make that the standard to judge other churches by. And that's very short-sighted. Um, Colossae is not Corinth. Corinth is not Colossae. Right? They're different churches. That, that's why we didn't just have one New Testament epistle that they sent to all churches. Different churches have different problems, different strengths, different uh, doctrines that they're working through at any given time. And that has to do in part with their host culture. So you need to be where you're at. And when you get there, you need to have a place to get started, to get to work. So where do you get started? Well, verse five, he says, build houses and live in them plant gardens, and eat their produce. So step number one, put down roots. Um, I had a young man who I'm fond of. Um, He was visiting all these different communities, trying to find the one that did Christian community right. So he visited um, Moscow, my church, a place down in Texas, uh, spent some time with the Amish and all this stuff. And uh, he was a single man, so he could bounce around like that and consider these things. And I thought, that's, that's fine for a season. It's like, you know, hiking through Europe or something. 
Um, probably don't want to do that in certain parts of Europe right now. But, uh, but anyway, it can, be, it can be a good experience to have. And so then he finally says, I'm going to come be part of your guys' church. And we're like, awesome, great, man. We help him find an apartment, um, make some job recommendations. Uh, but then it's like every couple of weeks, he's just popping out to go visit friends here and there and trying to, you know, uh, I don't know. He still, he didn't put down roots. And he ended up leaving our church on good terms and everything. But what I told him is like, look, it doesn't matter where you go, but put down roots because maturity, spiritual maturity comes through the practice of the mundane faithfully over and over and over and over and over again. You don't like come somewhere and just generate tight relationships uh, right away. Um, I've been watching our kids, the young kids in our church settle in and start to finally form friendships. And these kids that are in their teens that were ripped away from normal life during the pandemic, you know, and where like the only way they could uh, connect with people was through video games, right? Through, on, through screens, it's been very detrimental to their overall health. And a lot of us parents got sick of saying, use your imagination, <laughs> you know, and then we caved in more than we should have. And we're uh, reaping what we've sowed. Um, and now I'm watching them finally get to know each other. They're all grumpy at the start of the church plan. I heard all different families like, I don't like my new church. You know, well, our new church doesn't like you. How's that feel? You know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a downer, man. Um, but, uh, but, but over time, they've started, connected, started to get connected and, and, and into the rhythm of life. And that's, you got to put down roots somewhere. That's what he's saying. Build houses. You're not going anywhere, right? Get a plot of land, build something. Settle in, get to know your place. Really get to know your community. And that's hard. People seem to kind of freeze up, like, how do I get to know it? So I'm about to go through a long list of information. I'll give you some basic examples. So a lot of fruit comes from understanding your local context. People mistakenly assume that this is something that needs only to happen in foreign missions. Um, But it's just as necessary in a local mission field to where God's put you. And I'm on my second church plant, so this is how I approach things. And I like to approach local culture through a threefold lens of adopt, adapt, and reject. Adopt, adapt, and reject. Adopt. There are things in my local community which are fine as they are. There is no need to change them or replace them. Quite the opposite. These are things I ought to support and promote, so I simply adopt them. There's some festivals I can go to. I don't have to change them. There's like uh, HOA I can... I don't want one, but if there was one, you could join it, and I can imagine it being fine. Uh, my family belongs to a swim club, and a few of our church members are on the swim club uh, board. You know, uh, I can go to a local festival. I don't need to change these things necessarily. You can imagine ways that those things would all be evil, but there's also ways where it's, it's just fine as it is, and I can participate. Then there are things that must be adapted these are things in my community which, uh, while not essentially bad, need to be tweaked to be in line with Scripture. Consequently, I work to adapt those things. So let's say, um, like soccer, there's nothing wrong with soccer, but I'd say there's something wrong with soccer if it's all Sunday, right? So uh, maybe you could get on the league and move it to Saturday and, and make space, make space for church, right, for a gathering. Uh, so there's different things you can get involved in, assuming you can adapt them and you can move them. And uh, 
so you have to look, is this something I could adopt or must it be adopted? Then there are things you have to reject. These are things in the community which are intrinsically immoral and ungodly. These are things that must be rejected and confronted. So a gay pride parade or something. Not going to participate in that. I'm uh, not going to have, have any part to do with that. Uh, there could be other, other things like, I don't know, multi-faith day or whatever, where you, know, you just imagine things that have to be rejected. So adopt, adapt, reject. Think through it. It takes both a lot of time and research to know which is what, but there's, there's a lot of ROI to it as long as you don't get stuck in research mode. Um, and it requires that we actually um, get involved in the community God has placed us. So here's a few practical steps I've found helpful. Uh, things you can read, local blogs, local mainstream paper, local alternative paper, if there are any left. Um, I, the Wikipedia entry is on your city and town, just knowing the history, knowing what's going on. Uh, I follow a couple local Twitter accounts just to, like we, we put in this uh, really crazy roundabout that is the bane of everyone's existence on the, my side of town. And I had wished I'd known about it because I would have gone and complained. And, but I found out about it like just as they were putting it in. And so I want to know what's going on because now it takes me like an extra five minutes to, to get to church. Um, it's annoying. <laughs> so pay attention to re- recurring issues, issues that cause celebration, issues that cause woe. Moreover, be sure to read editorial sections in your papers as they focus on hot button issues and usually seek to draw lines between the opposing sides. This will help you understand the said values, the things that people say they're about. Also to inform you where the greatest resistance to the gospel will be. What is, what are the sins we need to call out, right? Like the best way to deal with people is go right at the heart of their idolatry. And Jesus said, the woman at the well, where's your husband? You know, I don't have a husband. That's right, you don't have a husband. And he goes right after it. He goes to the heart of it. And so actually knowing the, the, the major problems in, in your town. When I moved down to the South, I had to really adapt to everyone thinking they were Christians. And I used to do these fair ministries where I put a sign out and said, you need a church, I'll tell you why, right? So I did that in the Midwest. And in the Midwest, people get really offended. How dare you, right? I think it goes back to being on the other side of the Appalachians was still, uh, it, it, Christendom didn't take as much. And so people will come up and argue with you. So it was a way to get them to come talk to you at your booth, and then you just got to pivot them into something more you know, productive. You have to have a cool head to get the angry person to talk. It would work really well. So then I put that same sign up at the Piedmont County Fair down in uh, Spartanburg. And when people walked by it, they looked at it, and they were like, they like, like were guilted, and they would shake their head. And then I realized that these folks had grown up, and they still had a sense that you should be at church. And didn't make them mad, just made them guilty and drove them away. So I was like, this is not working at all. I have to take this sign down, you know. Like, that's just, you know, it's Cincinnati. The Spartanburg's like six and a half hours. It's not that far by, by, you know, Megavan. Um, And uh, so I start to understand what what are these people proud of. Um, I didn't get... I did not get the rebel flag as a northerner. Or well, I first off, I didn't get that I was a northerner. I was from the Midwest. I didn't think of my way that think of myself that way. But I found that if you're not from the South, it doesn't really matter where you're from. You're a you're a Yankee. <laughs> you're a northerner. Um, but you know, to me, all the kids I knew that had the rebel flag were just want to be racist up in the Midwest. That's the only reason they had it 
But down in the South, it really is connected to family heritage and, and states' rights and things that their actual great-grandfathers fought through. And I didn't get that. And so I was criticizing the flag, and I found that to, to not go well because I associated it with being proud of, uh, of sin, and they associated it with being proud of, of heritage of good things. So actually start to understand your, uh, your community. Uh, listen and watch uh, local bands, local lectures, uh, local concerts, local films, local plays, local sermons. Right? What is, what's going on in your, in your city? What's, what are people into? Pay attention to the content of the songs, lectures, and performances, as will not only reveal you know, said values, what people say they're about, um, but also the values of the people that show up at these things. Uh, participate wisely in your local bars, pool halls, swim clubs, drive-ins. I love drive-ins. They're great. You got to get there early and get up to the front part where the grass is so you can like throw the Frisbee and have fun. Um, but I can't tell you how many people we've met at drive-ins that do the same thing. So we have like three families from our church go to a drive-in to watch some, where we live, they do retro shows, which is pretty good. Um, and you end up just talking, fellowshipping with your other, the other Christians that come with you, but then you connect with some other family that you start throwing Frisbee with, and, and you get to know, know these people. Uh, farmer markets, playgroups, coffee houses, clubs, art galleries, wineries, gyms. A YMCA is a running joke about how many people I've met in hot tubs at YMCAs. <laughs> Here's why. Um, I found that if I read, I, I'm usually staying in the hot tub for about 15 minutes after lifting weights, and I'll read a book. Um, and so 15 minutes of reading is a lot of pages, and I can redeem that time. So a lot of my books have water, like water wrinkles on them <laughs> from that. So when you're reading a book in a hot tub, people are always like, what you're reading there? And you're like, well, I guess I'm not talking. About, I'm not going to get to read this. We're going to talk now. You know, it's a book on Christian anthropology. You know, and then we get into conversations and get to know people. And I became a, an acquaintance or a friend of sorts with a really high up uh, UMC pastor that was a woman. And it was a fascinating relationship. And she's like, you probably don't think I should be a pastor. I said, no, I don't, I don't think you can be. Like, I think it's like, like circles can't be squares. You know, cats can't be dogs. It's like a categorical impossibility. Um, but we, we became friends and um, and then she ended up like confiding in me all sorts of problems they're having with these pastors because they, they circle them out or cycle them out every three years. And they, they're so lazy, they only have three years of sermons that they've been preaching apparently for like 10, 20 years. And she was complaining about it. It was fascinating uh, to get to know them. Uh, your restaurants, your parks, governmental meetings, you need to be going to city council meetings um, on occasion, see what's going on. In our, uh, to get someone on city council where I live, is 150 votes, 150 votes to get someone on village council in the county seat, you know, 150 people, that's all. And we did that. One of our pastors is on village council, and we have a lot of people seeking positions in zoning, uh, which is something it's nice to have influence in. Uh, but show up to those meetings. If you're in an HOA, have uh, influence there, or you're going to be ruled by a bunch of old women. So... To certainly show up there. Pay attention to the demographic makeup of your local people. Are, are you dealing with lower, middle class, upper class, black, white, Asian, younger, older, hip, unhip, somewhere between, families or singles? How do they speak? Is sarcasm and irony welcome or considered rude? Had to, I had to adapt to that 
down in um, the South again, uh, if people hate you in the South, you will never know for years. You will find out years later, he hated me the whole time. He was so nice. Like, that's how Southerners are, right? They will, uh, they will smile and shake your hand and, and just despise you. <laughs> so I'm not used to that. In the, in the Midwest, we're pretty direct. We're not as direct as, say, someone from, like, Philly or the East Coast. Um, but uh, how does sarcasm and irony come off where you're at? Uh, pay special uh, attention to the men. Are they ultra macho? kind of thugs, some of the stuff you see up in Jersey. Is it healthy masculinity or feminine? Like metrosexual, homosexual, both feminine guys. Uh, this will help you know the actual makeup of your community and put a face on uh, what would only be a percentage on a demographic report. So this is like get out there and get to know these people. Ask what are the main industries in your locale? Com- our cities are shaped by their main employers. It's a big deal. PNG has a ton of power in Cincinnati, and so do the insurance companies. Chris Wiley was telling me at one of his former churches that his people all worked in the insurance um, industry, and that really affected their way that they approached problems, right? They're anti-risk, they're risk adverse. And we see this also in our churches in Cincinnati that these P&G execs will make enough money that they don't really need to work anymore and they'll quit and become pastors at some megachurch, and it, it's just the exact same corporate model that they have at PNG. These things affect where you're at. Who are your biggest employers? Which companies are trending up, trending down? What are their pay scales? What are their company cultures like? One reason I decided not to move to Washington State, well, there's lots of reasons, but one reason was I didn't think uh, if young families were going to relocate, they'd be able to buy houses. I, I didn't think the pay scale and the cost of living were at parity in a way that you could live a life. So um, what are the company cultures like? All this stuff. Uh, you need to also engage and talk to people. I used to always jokingly say introverts go to hell. I don't really mean that. Uh, what I really mean is that God has commanded you, despite your temperament, uh, to love your neighbor and to share the gospel and give a defense for the hope that's in you as those opportunities come up. So you have to interact. So you actually have to engage and ask people. People are dying to be loved. People are dying to have friends. People are dying to have someone interested in them. People are very lonely right now. They're very disconnected. And if you start to interact with their life, you'll get, you'll get so much back. It's very, a little invested in what comes back. is amazing. There's a ton of questions you could ask, but I always like to kind of figure out what makes someone tick? What are their fears and dreams and hopes? What are the idols that they worship in place of the creator? And it'll help you understand how to preach the gospel to them. And so the questions I'm always asking, there's kind of three. Why are you here? Why did you come here? You know, what's your purpose? You know, in, even in life in the bigger way. Fame, pleasure, family. Are you a grill American? Do you know what a grill American is? They're, they're, they're the reason, conservatives are the reason this country is terrible right, because they're grill Americans, because they just want to be in their backyard and grill. That's all they want to do. They just want to be left alone. Well, the other people don't want to be left alone. They want to meddle with your life. And the only people that can stop them are the people that want to preserve freedom. So you can't be a grill American. You just want to be left alone. That's a lot of people are moving out to the country to be left alone. And you have to train them out of that. Uh, What do you think is wrong with the world? You know, when you're getting to know people, 
How do you intend to fix it? Education, technology, you know, meditation, whatever. And so I don't really ask those direct questions. I use a lot of smaller questions that inch me towards a correct understanding of the people. Um, and God will provide you opportunities to invite these people over for a meal. Uh, these shared meals are a great time to ask smaller questions. Where are you from? Why did you move here? Do you have siblings? How were you raised? Did you grow up religious? Would you like to come to church this Sunday? One of the most powerful evangelical questions. Would you like to come to church this Sunday? You know, let your pastor do the heavy lifting. We'll help, right? <laughs> so if you're a little, you don't know where to go, just bring them there. But the main thing is wherever you're at, get plugged in. Think that way. Think about your people. Get to know the culture. Um, I had an acquaintance who planted a church in Cincinnati. Cincinnati is deeply shaped by restorationist uh, theology, which is Church of Christ, and they're, they're anti-denomination. So they're, not, they're the non-denomination denomination. Um, and I warned him. I said, look, Cincinnati, if you come in and you're critical of other denominations, it's going to stick to you, man. You got to be very careful um, when you're critical of other churches. Deal with it in kind of the principle and not don't name it or the whole town will turn on you. And they didn't, they didn't believe me believe because me they said that Indianapolis wasn't like that. And that was only 90 minutes away. But they did that and it, they got a rep right away and they're still trying to live it down. And so you need to understand how people, how people tick where you're at. Um, and it'll, it, it'll really help you minister to them and build things. So just get plugged in. I live and breathe Batavia and Claremont. It's, I love it. I, um, I love our trees. I love our animals. I love our businesses. I, it's how I think of it. It's where God's put me. Now note he also says plant gardens and eat their produce. And so these homes that they're building are productive homes. And I just want to say a few things about this. I really think uh, Chris Wiley's done a great job in Man of the House and his follow-up to that book on what is meant by productive homes. Another guy named Alan Carlson's written quite a bit on it. Uh, but once upon a time, homes were education happened, uh, training happened, hospitality happened, and even work happened. So homes had a productive value. They weren't just uh, Netflix and chill. They weren't just hang out and consume. The actual work got done. And so there is either a garden attached to it or your, your workshop was part of the home. And then men and women and children all worked together. So much so when the Industrial Revolution happened and a lot of the work got moved out of the home into factories, in the early stages, whole families would go work together in the factories. But then it got too dangerous for the women and the children. They got sent back to home, and the men kept working in the factories. And soon, there's this idea that the real work happened outside the home, and the home was just a place for recovery. But if you look at Proverbs 31, you'll see that's not what the Bible has in mind when it talks about a household. A household is more than even just the building. It's the property. It's the influence. It's everything attached to it. And... So plant a garden and eat their produce here. It's, this is not like the sort of uh, hobby garden that we think of today. It's, it's a productive home where their home actually makes something that they can be sustained on and they also can share with their neighbors. And so wherever God's put you, you need to put roots in and then ask what is something like a garden in its purpose that I can do in my home, make my home productive. Step number one is this hospitality. It's the easiest way to 
to make your home productive is have set a certain number of days in a month that you're gonna have people over to your home. So we do three Sunday lunches a month and that's how we cycle through and make sure we're spending one-on-one time with the families in our church. But it could just be, you know, if you're, if it's really hard for you because of your temperament that to spend time with people, it's like just the first and third Wednesday of every month, you guys are gonna start having people over. But practice hospitality. Make your home a place where relationships are formed, counsels given. Uh, you can start little side hustles. We got chickens. We're getting ready to get pigs. You know, um, chickens are really easy. They're disgusting, but they're really easy. Um, they're not hard. But you can have a productive home without having this sort of agrarian, going backwards sort of mindset. The main thing is that stuff needs to happen at your home. You can tell that we've moved away from this because once upon a time, dining rooms were quite large. And in homes now, when they build them, they're very small. And that's because people will go out to a restaurant and they're not inviting people over. So even in how you choose your home, when we chose our home, we looked really hard to find something that had a big enough dining room because when we eat, you know, my family, I have seven kids, and if we have two other families over that have larger families, soon there's like 24 people in our dining room. And we want to be able to do that. But look for ways to make your home productive. Uh, look for ways to start businesses. I mean, businesses are powerful tools of cultural shape. It's money. It's jobs. People listen to their uh, owners and uh, employers and managers like their mentors, whether they deserve it or not. And so when you start businesses in your community, that's, that benefits everyone. And your local people, even if they're non-Christians, will be really excited and s- support it. And that's one thing that uh, we seem to be doing okay so far in Batavia. Uh, we've started a couple businesses or in the process of starting and, and we make sure we start businesses that don't compete with the other local businesses. We're a much smaller town than this area, and so we're not going to start a coffee shop. There's already a coffee shop, and that, that would be bad, right? So look for ways to, to get involved in the actual economy. Make your home a productive home, and, and look for ways to start businesses or support other businesses that Christians are starting. Moscow does that really well. They have boosters and they have Tapped, which is this other restaurant that's really good. And everyone goes there and eats and they keep the money kind of flowing. But even the non-Christians come there and eat and have a great meal and are surrounded by a bunch of other Christians that they see over and over and over again. That's exactly what you want uh, to create. Then um, he says, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. So first, take wives. Uh, Finding at the core of any reformation is marriage, at the core of it. And there's a great book by Stephen Osment called When Fathers Ruled. And he shows in a convincing way that a big part of the reformation was reclaiming a Christian biblical view of marriage and family. And the Roman Catholic Church had eradicated it through their low view of marriage and, and raising up the celibate life, which for them was rarely celibate, and in normalizing lifelong singleness. The same thing has been happening. But culture is created first in the home. And you're not going to be able to change the national culture without changing the home culture. You're not gonna change the local culture without changing the home culture. So it all ties back to there. 
And part of that is getting married. And this is getting tricky right now. It's getting harder because trying to find suitable uh, spouses for your children is, you know, things are fracturing. Uh, So here's a few things I think we can do um, as parents and churches uh, to help people find a good spouse. One is churches where it's okay to be masculine and it's okay to be feminine. I know that's so simple, and you guys probably know this already, uh, but churches that uh, actually reward that. Um, The big one is music. Music that everyone can sing is helpful. If you want to drive men away, um, you know, I like Freddie Mercury here and there, but my worship time shouldn't be falsetto the whole time. You know, like, so high. And here's how you know if your worship's hitting the right point. Ten-year-old boys sing it. If ten-year-old boys participate in your worship, you're doing a pretty good job. And so you want to create a church that includes everyone. It shouldn't, you shouldn't feel like you're walking into a Hobby Lobby um, when you go to church, a Hobby Lobby bathroom um, where there's like shells everywhere. And, um, and so when you even do church design, you should think through what the space looks like so it's welcoming everybody. Um, but we need churches that encourage biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. Uh, so we, you know, I'd rather, I rather my daughter marry a masculine dispensationalist than an effeminate postmillennialist any day of the week, right? I know she will be way happier, and he might think they're getting enraptured or whatever, um, but when he doesn't get raptured and he disciplines my grandkids and provides for my daughter, um, that's going to be way better than another guy lecturing people on eschatology, but uh, is as effeminate as they come, Right? And we're looking for strong men and feminine women. And it's pretty, it's not hard to get there in a church like this one. You know, you just can create a space for them. Then you build informal networks of like-minded churches. So, I mean, one reason I'm coming here is I want to get to know you guys. Um, and I want to come to your other conferences and be able to recommend my church to come down to things like this. Um, uh, one reason we're throwing a conference in uh, fall is so we can get to know people. I go out to a church in Washington a couple times a year, and I'm going to send my son out there, who's 15, to intern at a company. And there's also a lot of girls from a lot of great families. I just want them to know that they exist, right? I'm not playing matchmaker yet, right? I just want, I want him to know that there's options out there. I want to broaden the horizon of possibilities, and I want uh, them to be able to know, like, there's, there are a lot of great options right now. You know, you just, we're all spread out. One good thing about the internet is our ability to actually connect like-minded, uh, like-minded churches. And then just to have functions like this one where you can come and meet. What I think as I grew up in the 90s during the, the, the weird courtship movement with Joshua Harris, the now apostate. And everything was really high pressure in that environment. Like, I'm not anti-courtship. I'm not the biggest fan of it. But uh, what I don't like is I don't like the high pressure commitment on the front end with someone you don't know, right? Where someone says, hey, can I have your permission to, to court your daughter? And I'm like, who are you, right? I have never even heard your name. No, you may not have all the capital I built up with my little girl my whole life to now enter into a formal relationship with her. 
Like, I, I need to hear your name from her first before I'm going to consider anything like that. Um, but I think our, we need to create environments where people can just get to know each other and have normal interactions, <laughs> you know? With a lot of guys, guys are absolutely petrified of talking to girls these days. And when they finally get the guts to talk to girls, it, 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 is, it is kind of painful to watch. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you know one, one guy, a good guy, a friend of mine, he, he might hear this too, but he was talking about how when he goes on dates, how uh, what do you do when you guys can't agree on whether or not you should pay for your kid's college education? And I was like, I've been married almost 19 years, and I don't, we still haven't figured that out. Like, that's coming up on dates repeatedly? <laughs> what? <laughs> that's weird, man. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> like, imagine like a clipboard and little, you know. But just create a place where folks can interact and get to know each other. It really helps when there's other couples around, older couples, so they can see what a mature relationship looks like. Um, correct an overly romantic view of marriage from the pulpit and in counseling by highlighting the confessional three purposes of marriage. Helpful companionship, someone that, that you enjoy being around that can help you in the work that God's given to you. Uh, protection against sexual immorality. It is not a sin to want to be attracted to your spouse. No woman wants to be loved just for her personality. Guarantee it. They want to know that you think they're beautiful. And they should be beautiful to you. Absolutely. They should make your blood boil at least a little. Okay? And so much so that no one else can take your eyes away from them. And then children. Children are a purpose of marriage. I ask people when I do marriage counseling, are you going to have kids? Are you willing to have kids if the Lord should give them to you? And if they say no, I won't do it. I will not officiate it. Right? It is a purpose of marriage. It would be a rebellion against it. Like God opens and closes the womb. There's some of you that have wanted to have a lot more kids than you've had, but the Lord hasn't, for whatever reason, allowed that to happen. That's different than willfully salting your fields. Um, And so I want to help people focus on those things, right? Do you enjoy each other? Like the first thing to do on a date or a court, what what do you call it when you court and you go out together? A court? Yeah. (laughs) Here's the first thing to do. Have fun. Enjoy each other. Have a good time. Uh, don't take out the clipboard. Don't interview them, right? Just get to know you and do something that's not super intense. I don't think going to the coffee shop and staring at each other, uh, you know, go to the farmer's market. Uh, go, go to a game night with some other friends or something. Like, just get to know each other. Have fun. Um, are, is this someone you connect with? Do you respect him? Uh, do you appreciate her, Right? Uh, figure those things out. Are you attracted to them? You know, these are the things to think of through as opposed to these long, crazy lists that people have for a perfect spouse. Part of that is um, because we don't have actual relationships. Like I'll hear guys talk, and I'll try to be pretty coded here, but I'll hear guys that uh, will rate women on like if they're a 10, a 9, or 8, so they've just taken all this time to like create standards for feminine beauty. And I was like, yeah, she's attractive or not. Like I don't have like decimal points on all of this. And well, I want to be married to a redhead. Who cares, man? Life is vapor. It is over in a second. 
and uh, you all are going to get old and look like a Kroger's bag in the wind before you know it, right? And, and did you marry someone that you appreciate, that you love, that you build up the church together, and we have to help these people lower their list without having no standards that don't matter. Life is about productivity, making things together. Um, there are the, the happy marriages that could have been created that were undermined by a weird idealism is, is staggering right now, you know? And the first five years of your marriage is always terrible, and you don't even know it. Like, when you hear that, you might think, oh, that means you're fighting all the time. That's not what I'm saying. You don't know how bad you are at loving your spouse, right? At the time, you feel like you're doing a good job, but you look back, and you're like, man, I was an idiot back then. And I didn't know how to talk to her. I can remember early on when Emily was crying once. I'm like, why are you crying, right? Well, it's women cry like men sweat. This is part of the thing, you know? <laughs> and I had to learn. But I had to learn. It didn't mean the same thing. I had to learn that she talked differently. And the oasis that is our marriage um, now came through a lot of work and a lot of time. And it takes time to build that. So we have to uh, lower that romantic view and lift up that confessional view and say, no, no, there's something here. There's potential. You should continue to consider him or consider her and work through it. You marry for demonstrated potential, right? If you wait until potential has been fulfilled, they're married and you lost out, right? You, you catch them on the way up. That's what you do. You catch her on the way up. You know, Emily and I were, we got lucky. We started dating in high school and were married when she was still a teenager. And where she begins and I end, I don't know anymore. I can't. She knows all my jokes. I keep trying to surprise her. You know, I, tried, I jumped out the other day to scare her. I didn't scare her. It was really annoying. She knows where I'm at. <laughs> so lastly, encourage uh, singles to have that short list. Um, then, so those are a few things you can do. Tying this up here. Uh, become the fathers of sons and daughters, he says. Now, it would be selfish and irresponsible of you right now not to bring children into a dark and messed up world like this one. It's the opposite of what people I hear say right now. We shouldn't have kids. No, many hands makes the work light. And we need more capable hands to rebuild things and support us. Moreover, we need another generation of people to carry forth a torch of sanity, a torch of orthodoxy. But this also assumes that they're not going to be swallowed up into the world. Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Babies are not weapons of warfare. They're not. This is talking about grown children, right? That's, they, they start as the fruit of the womb, and then they're arrows. They grow. You have to raise them up. You have to bring the harvest in. And if we're going to recover uh, the productive womb, wanting to be fruitful and have a good number of kids, as I think we should, we're below replacement rate right now. I think it's like 1.74, you know, and that can't, you can't sustain a culture. Uh, we'll outnumber them if we just keep having kids. That's actually why they're going after our kids, because they're not fruitful. And that's why when I say them, I'm talking about those with a non-Christian, aggressive cultural agenda. They have to win kids because they don't have their own. Um, but if you're going to recover the productive womb, you have to also recover the productive household or your family 
will live in misery. It takes money and resources to take care of kids. Not as much as they want you to believe. Babies early on are pretty easy. You know, if you do cloth diapers, it's cheap but miserable. Um, so I hear. I wasn't involved in that side of things very often. I said, I'll pay you back later on somehow. Uh, if she's uh, going to provide the household with a lot of children, he's going to have to provide the household with a lot of tangible and intangible resources. In a sense, they both will spend their physicality building something bigger than themselves, but the burden will be spread between the two of them, not just her, not just him. She will give the household the strength of her beauty. He will give the household the beauty of his strength. She will sow passing physical beauty into the household, but she will reap spiritual beauty that lasts forever. He will sow physical strength into the household, but he will reap spiritual strength, which never fades. They both end old and to a degree shriveled, right? Male and female, husband and wife. If we're going to have lots of kids, it's hard and you need resources. And I think one thing that is missing in our churches is uh, making sure people are competent and have skills and have been coached in, in vocation and the idea of calling. We need to get back that Protestant understanding of calling where it's uh, you serve the Lord through your job. You bring honor to them and helping people uh, have a drive to actually be as productive as God allows them to be. Scripture does not praise poverty. It, it, you have four categories. The righteous poor, they're righteous, and it's just because uh, circumstances outside of them, and they're being faithful. The unrighteous poor, they're lazy sluggards. You have the righteous rich. Again, they've been faithful to their circumstances, and God has blessed their diligent hands. And you have the unrighteous rich, who either have used twisted methods to get their rich, riches, or the riches that God has blessed them with, they use uh, for their own glory and their own good, and not for the honor of God. And we want to train our people to be as fruitful as they can and push them out there in, in their local jobs. We'd like to see a Joseph's rise to the top of their businesses and be the ones that actually do the, the vocational counseling at their jobs and point people, you know, your real problem is you need Jesus. And you can get there as a manager. You can get there in your jobs actually saying that. But we need to have productive households. There needs to be money flowing in to take care of these children. And that's what leads, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. So your community, you should love your community. And if you're doing well, your community will generally see you as a net positive. Um, We've had people protect us from, there was someone trying to get us kicked out of a building and we had someone in the know say, hey, they're going to try to get you kicked out of this building, and they ha- they'll have the ability uh, this Thursday. They're getting installed to an office. You might want to come in before Thursday and pay rent for a year. So they can't do that. So, and this person didn't go to our church, and I don't, I think they're kind of a cultural Christian. That's how most people are on the uh, east side, outside of Cincinnati. Um, and so we came in, and we paid. And then, uh, and we waited till she got out of office, and then we voted someone into her, her position. <laughs> so that's what we did. But, um, but they were supporting us because they know we love the town. So when we had our county before a country uh, conference last year, I, uh, I was gonna bring in food trucks, but I talked to one of the local uh, restaurants. I said, why would you do that, right? 
Don't bring in people from outside. We'll take care of it. And I was like, all right, well, how can we? It's going to be a lot of people. Can we work this out? So I worked it out with two restaurants. And uh, that day we brought a couple thousand dollars to their businesses. And they're very supportive of us. And one was like a, a Roman Catholic dating some sort of new ager guy, uh, but a, a big advocate of ours. Um, just because they see that we want Batavia to do well. We, we love it. We want it to be a safe place. When you meet your neighbors, don't get stuck on labels right away. Don't figure out they're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't really matter at some level. Most people want the neighborhood to be clean and safe and an enjoyable place to be. And you can get past a lot of stuff really quick. It's like a shortcut, a cheat code into their life if you don't try to measure them up right away and you just talk about that stuff. And, when, and you'll soon have people that aren't even Christians say, hey, can you, can you feed my cats while I'm out? Or can you collect my mail for them? It opens up incredible doors into their life. You can build a local community right where the Lord has you. I like what Riken says here, though. He says, by themselves, random acts of kindness cannot bring enduring peace. Because he wants you to pray. Jeremiah said, pray for the shalom, the peace, the wholeness of everything being in its right place. He says, uh, random acts cannot bring enduring peace. The only basis for real and lasting shalom is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You have to preach the gospel. And it is powerful, so powerful. Here's how I got saved. I went to some, some place and a guy preached the gospel. That's, that's it. I was an atheist when I came, a Christian when I left, you know? And God will work through his word powerfully. So as you build these relationships, there are opportunities for you to, to, uh, to preach the gospel. I think... There's nothing wrong with relationship evangelism if it's evangelism. It's usually just relationship. And if they see I'm awesome, they'll just repent. No, you have to call them to repentance. You actually have to preach the gospel. But you actually have to talk to people. Like the word has to be preached and it has to be someone that listened. I knew this guy that was a street preacher and street preachers love to stream. You know, I don't know. They always, I always ask them, does it count if you don't put it on Facebook? If you just go out and preach the gospel? But he was at this gas station on the corner preaching. And I knew exactly where he was. And I was watching it streaming online and there was no one there. And he's just preaching though, really. And I, I don't know, does he think it's magical? Like the words mix into the air and like absorbs to people down the road, like an aroma, you know, like in the cartoons where the dog smells the pie and it carries them along to the, like. <laughs> preaching works through faculties. Through hearing, how can they hear if they're not there? You got to get to know people. Put down roots where the Lord has put you. I don't know how long I've gone, but one last comment. Um, I like what he says, do not listen to the dreams which they dream. And there's a lot of people that have this perfect dream of what a church should look like and cultural engagement should look like. And to that, I like D.L. Moody's famous quote. I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it, right? Actually taking a step to do something. I, I've been around libertarians, and libertarians are pretty much worthless um, when it comes to getting things done, um, <clears throat> where they talk more and more about privatization, how do you privatize roads or whatever, but they're not actually taking any step in the local government to get something done. And now they're not all like that, but I also know post-millennial guys like this that wax on and on about the great society they'll build once this whole thing collapses, 
right? Bullets, beans, and bunkers until then. Uh, but you have to work where God's put you right now, right? They got to work in Babylon, in pagan Babylon, where they worship false gods, where they've been carried away. It says, puts down root, put down roots, don't have a holy huddle, actually produce things and get involved. So start where you're at. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it challenges us uh, practically. Help us to live these things out. Pray that today, Lord, even today, we would start to take action, that we get to know our neighbors, we'd share the gospel with them, that we'd see ways that we can make our homes more productive. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless people with marriages here and bless those marriages with children and bless those children with a strong faith in you, Lord. We pray that our numbers would increase and not decrease, Lord, that your word would go forward through growing churches and through growing holy families. And we ask this in the name of your son, amen.